Hello, and welcome to the October episode of Cinetopia. I'm Amanda Rogers, co-founder of Cinetopia, and I'm here with Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One Magazine. How are you, Jim? I'm very well, thank you. Good. And uh, Luca Vuko is part of Cinetopia as well. How are you doing? Not bad. Okay, well, Annie and Paul are out of town. I think Annie had to run off to Finland. Uh, September was quite crazy for Cinetopia. <laughs> we had five events uh, culminating in a very participatory uh, screening of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Luca, you were there. What do you think? Yeah, well, it was my... I'd seen Rocky Horror before, but this was my first experience of... Um, uh, well, I was as they say, a virgin in uh, one of these... Uh, you weren't a slut. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of these... <laughs> uh, one of these... Um, uh, what do you call it? Performative, like, pro like participatory, yeah. so you call back... Um, so it's always a script, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, actually, the weird meta properties of watching the film and then also seeing characters, uh, uh, people dress as the characters also acting yeah, out the film. Yeah, we had a shadow cast. And yeah, uh, so that was it, was it was really cool, and it was, the, the response was obviously really cool from the audience uh, check out the pics yeah it was it was it was it's one of those things that we were hoping people would really enjoy and they did so i think it might be an annual thing but anyway scalarama is over for us and october is the beginning of festival season <laughs> so jim tell us a little bit about what's on the docket in the festival world uh, so as uh, as we broadcast, the London Film Festival will have just finished. Um, a lot of films there, a lot coming out very soon. I think the one that maybe will people will be most popularly aware of is The Irishman, uh, Martin Scorsese's new film, which will be coming to Netflix, but it will be getting some cinema runs as well. A lot of other stuff, uh, new Noah Baumbach film, Marriage Story... Uh, one of the films that we're talking about, actually, by the grace of God, that screened at the London Film Festival. Uh, and then me personally, I'll be going down to the Cambridge Film Festival where that film is screening. And there's a whole bunch of interesting things. There's a lot of festivals going on. Uh, there was Take One Action has just finished. Uh, the Edinburgh Spanish Film Festival was uh, at the start of October. And there's a lot of like small festivals popping up in Scotland. Document Film Festival is another mm -hmm. one which uh, has some really interesting screenings going on. Um, so there's a lot going on. Uh, just check it out and then, of course, come to the Take One Cinetopia websites to find out more about all these things. Yeah, and so you have a plan for um, some some specific Cinetopia coverage of the Cambridge Film Festival, correct? Yep, that's the plan. Uh, so we, we have a, a partnership uh, with Anglia Ruskin University where some of their students uh, get experience of reviewing films and covering festivals in a journalistic capacity. So what we're hoping to do is to team up with their uh, audio team in that uh, university and try and do a episode of the podcast with the films that are at the festival. Well, that's very exciting. And as you know, uh, unfortunately, Paul can't be here today, but the Edinburgh Short Film Festival is coming up at the end of this month. We, uh, Cinetopia, is going to do our regular networking evenings, but we're going to launch the um, on the 24th, uh, the first hour before the film festival starts. So uh, definitely come down to BrewDog for that. And um, the Edinburgh, I've been edit, I've edited the uh, trailer for for it, and there's some really really amazing films in this year's um, film film festival. Uh, tell me a little bit more about what you know about it, Jim. So I've seen a few of the shorts. Um, I've popped up in various contexts, like other festivals. I've seen a couple for uh, writing about them for Take One. It's a very strong program, as it has been whenever I've been paying attention to the short film festival. Um, we've got an interview later in the show with the director of one of those shorts, uh, Tim Courtney, director of My Loneliness is Killing Me, uh, which won the BAFTA Scotland Award for Best Short. Um, so that's screening. There's the uh, Oscar-winning short film, a lot of 
you know a lot of shorts which have won awards at other festivals and as ever they've you know the team have done a very good job of putting them into kind of themed strands and it's looking like a very very strong festival yeah and so the dates are the 24th to the 12th it's like three weekends i think they're also planning on doing quite a lot around animation with edinburgh college of art as well so there's some animation weekends um so it's just it's really very they're actually bringing also a whole bunch of uh different um you know uh other short film festival and film festival uh directors in to show their best of the festival so it's it's going to be quite a big big thing yeah so there's the selections of the festival itself but there's also uh, there's a polish animation evening on the i think it's the end of the opening weekend and then the the weekend after that so the, the short film festival has a lot of partnerships with these other film festivals throughout europe and there's a screening of those festivals kind of best off selected by the directors of those festivals which is going to be on november 1st um so you'll get the selection from the short film festival itself but you also get a little bit of a flavor of stuff which has been selected at things like uh the adriatic film festival which is i, I think that's maybe why but paul wasn't around for uh the short part of couldn't see the films because he was at that festival so yeah looking like a very strong festival yeah so if you're interested edinburgh short film festival.com is where you go to see the program um but now on to october film so um we're going to first start our podcast um reviewing four films that are either been out or are just coming out um the joker um i think we all have heard a lot about that one, and we'll be talking about that in length. Um, nonfiction um, by Olivier Assayas, uh, The Day Shall Come, uh, directed by Chris Morris, and By the Grace of God, um, directed by Francois Ozon. Uh, also, Jim Ross had also done an interview with Tim Courtney, who was the director of My Loneliness is Killing Me, which is also going to be at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Right, so our first film that we're going to review today is Joker, which has been out for a couple weeks, but it's all over town. Um, anyway, uh, directed by Todd Phillips. Jim, give us a little bit of a synopsis. So, as you can guess from the title of the film, it is basically an origin story for Batman's most iconic villain, uh, but it's a standalone thing, so it's not really related to any of the other DC films that have come out lately. It doesn't link into Justice League or uh, Batman v Superman or anything like that. I don't think it even uh, links into the forthcoming one that is coming from Matt Reeves. I think it's next year. It's very much a standalone thing, and it follows a man called Arthur Fleck, who lives with his mother. He's very down out on his luck. He's a clown for hire. Uh, you know, so he's standing on street corners, twirling signs around. He wears a stupid wig. And we opened the film with him doing that and him basically getting set upon by some kids and having, you know, getting beaten up in a side alley. And it basically charts then his descent, really, um, into becoming the Joker, into becoming this iconic supervillain. Um, he suffers from various mental ailments. He's on a lot of medications. As he lives with his mother... Um, and it's set in Gotham City during a garbage strike, so it's a very grimy, very depressing, kind of oppressive atmosphere. And as I say, it basically just follows the process of him becoming the Joker. So by the time we get to the end of the film, no spoilers, I mean, it's pretty obvious, he is the Joker, and it's basically just following that process and what 
actually causes him to become that character and what the the driving forces were behind it. So it's directed by Todd Phillips, who's probably best known for uh, comedy, um, particularly the Hangover trilogy. And he has pitched this to DC Warner Brothers, and it's co-written by him and uh, I think Scott Silver is the name of the other screenwriter. So it's a very dark, uh, it's R-rated in the States, I think it's a 15 here, so it's very much going for a challenging adult take on this character and how that character came about. And what do you think of it? Um, so there's been a lot of there's been a lot of hysteria around this film. You know, it, it premiered, I think it was at Venice, uh, where it won the Golden Lion, and there's been a lot of chat about the film. I don't actually think necessarily a lot of it has dealt with how it is as a film. It's very inspired by. For me, I got very strong hints of it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff ripped from Martin Scorsese's filmography. Uh, Taxi Driver is an obvious touchstone. The thing that Hughes closest to is undoubtedly The King of Comedy, which follows Robert De Niro as a basically a crap stand-up comedian, effectively, trying to get his big break. And De Niro was actually cast in the film. He plays the role of a... TV talk show host, not unlike Jerry Lewis's character in The King of Comedy. So that's a very, very close uh, inspiration for this film. It's also got elements of other things. I got a bit of Sidney Lumet off it and kind of that kind mm-hmm. of like New York 70s, 80s noir aesthetic. It wears its influences very much on its sleeve. I'm just not convinced it really does much with that. It feels a little bit empty to me. It feels a little bit hollow. Um, what I will say is it does get some points for trying. It is trying to address a lot of adult themes and a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in a comic book film. There are comic book films which have tried to approach difficult topics before. I don't think they've done them successfully. I don't think this one does either, but I will give it points for trying to do that. I also think it looks incredible, but I'm interested in what you guys thought of it because before I go off on one about you know bits that I think didn't work, there's plenty to talk about, and there is plenty this film did well. What did you find? Um, let's let's just get out of the way. Joaquin is, for me, this is um, very much somewhat of a, a culmination of actually quite a few roles that he's done. Um, watching this, you know, uh, the body contortions that he does with his face and everything is very much like, you know, Freddie Quell in The Master. Um, the romantic melancholia from her is kind of in this as well. Um, and what I, and, and, and of course, what I liked about it is like Joaquin has sort of played villains before, um, most notably in Gladiator. But in here, he plays a villain where definitely by the end, um, because it is the Joker, it's really cool to see him invest in some sort of evil glee. Like there's a stair sequence featuring none other than Gary Glitter. Um, and it's, you know, it's, parts of it is kind of fun to watch. And as someone that has heavily read into Batman and all these things, it's cool to see this character come to life up to the standard of someone like Heath Ledger. I, I really think like that that performance is there. And... Of course, one of the illnesses that he suffers from is um, known as pseudobulbar effect, which is like this uncontrollable laughter, um, which in the case of this film is more aligned with uh, some sort of PTSD rather than I think it's uh, multiple sclerosis that that uh, disease comes from. Um, 
so I, I really liked it. I, Joaquin, that's already been said by everyone. It's he's amazing in it. Uh, I'm sure you guys will agree. Um, with regards to the influences, um, this film, next to the films um, that Jim has already mentioned, there are parts of the there are latter parts of the film uh, that reminded me of more um, contemporary films. Like, um, there's a very specific film that came out in 2015 called Christine um, that starred Rebecca Hall. Um, And that film was obviously inspired by Sidney Lumet's network and stuff like that. But that film was about a news anchor who, to quote Arthur Fleck himself, uh, can't realize whether it's her or whether it is just getting crazier out there. And she realizes that the news is just feeding off of this craziness. And as per the real-life story... She offs herself on live TV, and um, that's all I'll say. You know, it's up to the people uh, people to watch it. Um, I thought that was very prevalent, um, and likewise, modern times. Um, we'll get into, I suppose, the the politics maybe of the film, what it's trying to say on a social level. Um, so, as a way of introducing that, I think there is a sequence of modern times that really struck me um because part of this film it vacillates between you having sympathy not maybe empathy towards the character and then the 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 watcher of the film having to contend with the fact that this character is a psychopathic narcissist that like he enjoys killing people um whether that's people that are technically in the one percent or whether that's people that are technically on his social strata. Um, and there's a sequence, if, if people have seen it, there's a sequence in modern times where Charlie Chaplin, um, the tramp, uh, well, he's, he's not really the tramp in that film, but like he, um, he gets out of a sewer and um, there's a truck going, but this isn't in the film, uh, but like the, there's, um, in the Joker rather, there's a truck going by and there's a flag on that truck and the flag falls down. And um, he picks up the flag and he starts waving. It's like, no, come back, come back. Like, you know, you, you, the flag has fallen off. And as he's doing that, an entire army of protesters that are, that are protesting, you know, the, the poison of modern times come up behind him. And he ends up being the involuntary leader of, this, of these protesters without even knowing it. Um, in many ways, that's what this character is representing on a social commentary level. The film tricks you, I think, into thinking this is meant to be about, you know, the dispossessed and disenfranchised and the mentally ill being taken over. When in fact, it's about someone that's kind of hijacking all of these things for their own narcissistic gain. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's stuff like that. It's all the technical things that Jim has already mentioned. Um, the, the, the weird combination in the score between popular songs and this brooding cello soundtrack by Hildur Guana de Tier, I think is the way you pronounce it. Um, I just thought it came... Look, I, I was walking the street afterwards and I was thinking about it. I was like, you know, and I watched Endgame and I thought about it for a bit, but I, I, I thought about Endgame for about two hours after the film. I thought, I'm still thinking about Joker. 
Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the controversy, all of everything we're just talking about, we have a lot to say about this film. So in, in any aspect, we have to give the film a bit of credit. And I was, I'm kind of absolutely amazed how polarizing this film is, to be honest. Um, I didn't necessarily know walking into it what to expect i'm not a huge i don't know the whole history of batman films and joker films and all and the history of this of this character so i went back and did a little bit of research but i have to say i don't i didn't expect it to be a comedy i've seen i read some reviews that it was like not funny i found it frightening like it was a scary film Absolutely. and it kept me on my seat i also am wondering if i am so blown away by cinematography that like I, and and good performances which i think a lot of us are and you can't not commit to the fact that this was a very very highly stylized gorgeous sort of like take on new york similarly it's funny that joaquin phoenix was also in the lynn ramsey film that was also very similar to showing this like gritty new york um and they both did it very well um, I think this one Todd Phillips did was way more stylized and I feel like the Lynn Ramsey film was um, was really raw and I, I really, really loved that film and I'm sorry for you, what, what, what's the film's name? You Were Never Really Yeah, You Were here. Never, yeah. And, um, but, I, but, I, but I'm st still kind of uh, blown away by that particularly, so I'll start there and then I'll let you keep going. <laughs> So, here's my thing with it, right? When I was watching the film, I swung back and forth between thinking it was really good and it was really bad. In the end, I've come out on the side of thinking it's not that great. So, somewhere in the middle, but definitely towards the it's bad part of the spectrum. Now, part of the reason for this is you are both entirely correct. Joaquin Phoenix's performance is superb, right? And I, if I was being, if I was wanting to be deliberately controversial, despite the fact that I'm not sold on the film... I personally think his performance is better than Heath Ledger's. Now, I can go into, like, why at a different time, because there's probably been people... Well, why? Be... Well, because Heath Ledger, as good as he was, it's a very it's a very showy performance. He has a lot of dialogue with which to work. The most terrifying parts of this film, and when I feel Wacky Phoenix in, embodies that character and the way that that character is both you know descending mentally whilst also ascending in terms of his confidence and thoughts of himself which is a very difficult mix to pull off he's doing it entirely through physicality he's doing it without dialogue and this kind of actually and actually i'm glad you asked me because this because this gets me to the heart of what my issue is with this film the cinematography is superb right the the hangover films have you know for all their faults and the later entries have always looked very good and it's the same cinematographer here Joaquin Phoenix does an excellent job with this performance, right? And to me, I, I think he needs to he needs to do more than Heath Ledger did. That's that's the main thing here. I think Heath Ledger had quite good material to work with, which is not to take away from his performance. It's still incredible. They're both very good performances. But the performance in Joker and the way it looks mask for me what is a very simplistic script. The bits of this film that do not work for me are when Phoenix has to deliver the words put into his mouth by Todd Phillips. There's a sequence at the end, and, you know, avoiding spoilers around specifics, there's a scene right at the end um, involving the TV uh, host played by Robert De Niro. 
the dialogue in it, I'm sorry, it's like it's been written by a high schooler. It's so on the nose. It's so lacking in nuance completely. And the issues that the film wants to bring up, it does it with all the subtlety of a brick through a window. And that performance is miles above the material it's been given. My issue is the more I watched the film, the more I got annoyed because it's it's invoking much better films and a performance which is not worthy of the script which is here. And it's not trying to forge its own path because there is a lot of window dressing around the edges of Batman mythos. There's a, basically what is quite frankly a half-baked subplot the centers around Thomas Wayne, right, who is the father of Bruce Wayne, who will, of course, go on to become Batman. And Bruce Wayne is in this film. He's in it his, in his as a child. I think he's maybe about 10 years old or something. So that's in the backdrop. It's all too willing to embrace that and is using all of these elements, to my mind, to elevate what is a pretty thin script. Now, it gets points for trying because it's trying to do something more interesting than something like Endgame, quite frankly. This is a more... For all the scope that something like Endgame have... This is a more cinematically ambitious film than a lot of the Marvel films. But for me, all the technical aspects and the performance aspects and the reality of it, and we'll come back to the reality of it in a minute, because I can see Luca is like absolutely itching to try and counter some of these points I'm making, right? To me, it is trying to elevate what is actually pretty thin material. I also would just say I don't know where... I mean, I mean, we talk about people like Quentin Tarantino's films are completely modeled, and I actually like them. They're modeled other after other films, and and sort of and and this is definitely taking direct inspiration from some films, but it's 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 paying homage to them as well. So where are we saying that this isn't you know an okay film to take homage to films that I think we all sort of respect in terms of you know the '70s work? I. I guess I didn't expect much because when you put the hangover in front of like like as a director, I wasn't expecting that it's a DC comic. It's an anti-hero story. It wasn't something that I expected massive amounts of. I didn't think it was going to win, a, you know, a massive film festival either. So I think that's maybe where I wasn't as I wasn't as offended by the story being you know like a this person personal story i'm also just not a comic book kind of like i don't watch a lot of those you know like those films to me kind of feel like fake and this was to me like a, a character driven story done by like it was written for this you know this this actor specifically and if he was able to carry that story to the point that we could all say he did a really good job there's got to be something in there for the rest of the team to have you know to have done well well um just to just to address the comic book stuff um i like this just for for any comic book fans that are listening to this podcast um you know like me um this this there was a lot about this film you know throwing you know unlike you know all these comic book films that come out now where the actors have to do their research into the character and read reams of uh, material that's come before the making of a film this film does throw stuff out but retains the essence of the character uh, a particular scene um one of the murder scenes that we chatted about this which i won't spoil really does this um 
it it involves the scissors so like if you were going to see yeah, like that like you know that scene retains the essence of the character but also there's set pieces like the talk show um the talk show scene or um even the, actually the very fact that the origin um has aspects of like arthur fleck wanting to do stand-up that's alan moore's killing joke like it it's still it's still drawing from the history of the character um on realism and the thin script um i disagree um i think um there's a lot about this actually that you know like you said the, f the film was written for joaquin um and there was the, all this press about how every day they would actually rewrite the script and i, I you know look that's not only is apparently that really commonplace for large budget films, but also it means that they were refining this film in the process. And Joaquin has said that, you know, he was discovering new things about this character. And it really shows like I I really think there is refined elements in this film that are that is, you know, the, the, the result of a process of really thinking about what story these people were telling. Um, there is another film. Um, way back uh, that this film draws influence from and it's actually the basis for how the Joker was written by people like Bill Finger and stuff like that. There's a film called The Man Who Laughs by Paul Lenny um, which incidentally is about um, a king kills one of his competitors and then disfigures his son so that he's perpetually laughing and, and stuff like that. Um, that film is um, a German expressionist film um, and with regards to what story and what world this film is cre uh, this film is creating, um, this is the w this is a story. Despite you know, Taxi Driver had a voiceover, and what this film has over Taxi Driver is that it's able to tell a first person story without voiceover. Um, and you, there are points in the film that I was literally like, oh, yeah, shit, like we're, Joker is telling the story. Um, this, you know, and, and that's, that's the beauty of the trick of this film is that it gives you this very 70s New York realistic version of Gotham City. Um, and then it, you realize, no, this, this is, this has been tied up in ribbons by, by Joker. This is, you know, there's a, there's a subplot with, um, Zazie Beetz's character, which is deliberately limited so that something is revealed, um, and if, if you, you take my point that this film has been refined, that people, the people that made this have thought about this on every level, um, then the perceived shortcomings to me, they're not shortcomings. They are the, you know, the, the faults that someone has when they're telling a story, just as, you know, I'm trying to make my point right here very laboriously, <laughs> um, so that's that's my point. The, the it's it's a be this film beautifully depicts a warped version of the world as seen through the eyes of the Joker. Um and the final scene um you know you like well first of all you Jim you mentioned like the writing in that talk show sequence. Well, there there like even though there's subversions in that scene, there you know Robert De Niro talks like a talk show host would on TV. It's, it's sort of you know moralizing wise patriarchal figure that's you know telling someone what they should be doing and then the writing in the last scene for me is i'm not going to spoil it but it's it's a beautiful bookmark to how the film begins with a psychiatrist um and when you compare those two scenes 
the film starts very early with a psychiatrist and ends with a psychiatrist. Um, and when you realize where this character has come, how he's transformed, despite it being a very linear, tragic line of, you know, it's he's always going to become this, you know, there's going to he's always going to become this monster. Um, it's just it. I, I was bowled over. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> right. Um, I can totally see why someone, right, and Luca in particular, right, has explained very eloquently why he likes this film. And as I say, there are good things in this film. The main thing for me is that like the, the, the final scene, I was not bowled away by it. I mean, it brought to mind for me, basically, like if anybody's watched Seinfeld right there's a scene careful right <laughs> there's a scene where like you know george costanza is trying to use a phone and he's not allowed to and he basically just wanders off into the middle of the restaurant and just kind of like gets really frustrated and screams <laughs> we're living in a society yeah. right yeah. i mean i'm sorry that is about the level of depth of commentary that joker gets to and it has a lot of technical trappings beyond that, which elevate that story. But that's what it's that it's no deeper than that. But 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 that's the thing. It it the film starts telling you we are making a social commentary, and then you realize actually no, we are talking about a monster that's hijacking the social commentary. Well, that's the thing. It doesn't go into that. It doesn't. I get your point. Like, you know, you come to realize that basically things are being co-opted for this character's own validation, his own personal objectives. Right. But the entire trappings of the film before then are not that. It is focused, like, it goes through, you know, so there are scenes with his, um, I think it's his social worker, where they talk about budgetary cuts. There are hints towards the mistreatment of his mother by Wayne Enterprises, who she used to be employed by. He gets beaten up about three times within the first 45 minutes or something. It is all about the mistreatment of the character up to that point, and it doesn't do enough of a rug pull after to indicate that no this is something ingrained which this character is now getting the chance to express it's not communicating that well enough the other part of it is the technical execution right for all of its plus points and things like cinematography and all the rest of it is very very mixed right because it's going for this grimy real feeling gotham city and that's where the the influence of you know, the king of comedy, taxi driver, uh, prince of the city, all this sort of stuff comes in. But at every point, Todd Phillips looks to stylize this extremely heavily. And the the staircase scene that you mentioned earlier is a key example of that. It doesn't let the, the it doesn't let it breathe. At one point, it's doing like Gary glitter, uh, yeah. right? And then within a second, it is fading into what is quite frankly a brilliant score by Hildur Gwynedottir. Um, Apologies yes. to all, all yes. Icelandic speakers. And it's it's very mixed execution. I don't think... I, the, I see what it's trying to do and okay. I agree that it's trying to do that. Well, I don't think it does it very well. The staircase sequence is really interesting to me because it's um, it's the, the keystone for what the film is, which is... I'm really glad you brought up the music in that because you start off with Gary Glitter. And much like the film, you start off with, you're like, oh, you're in, whether it's the darkness or the glee, or, you know, it's the general evil of this character, much akin to the mind of Gary Glitter. Um, and then you go into the, these weird ambient thuds that mimic, you know, his, like, you know, landing on the steps and stuff like that, as two cops appear, as reality itself veers its head. And the film is weaving in and out of that. And, and 
look, like, again, I, I do, you know, just to finish my point on this, because uh, I know we have other films to review. Um, the, the, uh, the, it's really interesting that there are a lot of African-American characters in this um, that occupy, they're clearly in the same social strata as the main character. And they actually, feel, like even like in the trailer, you see um, he's on the bus and he's, uh, you know, he's chatting to a kid and um, it's a, a little kid and there's an African, African-American kid and African-American mother, obviously. Um, and that's one of the scenes where, you know, he gives the little card because he starts uncontrollably laughing. He's like, this is my condition. And um, the trailer makes it seem like, oh, sh- you know, she's just going to, oh, you crazy asshole. No, she, she's actually really calm about it. She, it's, she understands. The psychiatrist goes, um, you know, people don't give a shit about you and they don't give a shit about me. Um, Zazie Beetz's character, at least for the... That's an example of that on-the-nose dialogue I'm talking about, by the way. <laughs> well, that's true, but it's also, it's interesting to see how he reacts to that. Because Arthur Fleck, they go to him, um, we understand your pain, and like we're all in this together, but Arthur Fleck can't look beyond himself. And there's a very good sequence where he sees... Um, I, I, was, I was watching another review by... Uh, on YouTube, and um, they mention this as well. There's a scene where he um, he sees a a person in a clown mask in a taxi, and he smiles. And in this review, they beautifully said it's a perfect example of someone seeing their own face uh, in a crowd. They only see the embodiment of their own self um, in the world, and they don't see that they are part of one collective that is collectively struggling. Um, I mean, it, it reiterates the point I've been trying to make that he is a narcissist and he's a psychopath. I'd just like to interject in one thing. I, I, I'd like to say, what is this film, who is this film made for? And if you see how many people who are watching it, it is a popular film. So the idea of stylized, stylized and sort of storylines and stuff that works for a, a, like a, a massive amount of people sort of seems to fit what would be you know something entertaining and and then in my own sense i was entertained secondly i would say as someone who's lived in new york i think there's something very very and why taxi driver did it really well why the 70s films did it really well why this film like hits upon this is there's something very very isolating about being part of a space like that and also being part of a group and and I, I definitely think that there's and there's something very narcissistic about being there too and like and and thinking like you're the most important person in the room so I think there's there is something like taking upon all of these stories about New York and all of this research and I think there is an effort whether or not we all agree it's done well um, to sort of to, to have that conversation so the funny thing is right what, what you've said there and what what Luca was saying there i don't necessarily disagree with large swathes of that the issue for me is it has taken an, an iconic character and as far as i'm concerned it, it has attached it to a pretty substandard story that's that's really what it, what it comes down to if it didn't have the trappings of this Warner Brothers DC budget, if it didn't have Joaquin Phoenix, and I realise there's a lot of ifs here, right, because the obvious counterpoint is, well, well, it does have all these things, Jim, right? But the thing is, it's trying to be a smart comic book film. No problem with that. 
and I, I again I laud its ambition. However, the execution for me on the story front and the script front is not there. If it was in any other context, this would be seen for what the script I believe is, which is it's very satisfied with itself. It thinks it's delving into conversations, but it's not. Like talking about you know what leads people to co-opt movements or start movements and how we treat members of society i'm sorry you've got to go deeper than simply putting up banner adverts and playing a clip from modern times it, you have to go deeper than that but the film because it has all these trappings and it's attaching them to an iconic character it doesn't feel like it does need to go any deeper and as far as i'm concerned if you're going to go down that route then it needs to do it particularly when you are referencing so heavily films which have done that and i think it misunderstands some of these right i mean a lot of the horror in the king of comedy comes from the fact that it's it's, it's so banal in that film robert de niro is basically just a guy who's really insistent narcissistic yes and basically just bugs people into submission and it's the banality of it which is so uh, terrifying and that's kind of what this film is looking to do but it's so determined to be iconic and it's so determined to be shocking that it forgets to actually add the commentary you can't just point to a topic and say hey you remember that that's dreadful isn't it and then just you know then go into the joker dancing to gary glitter it's not depth it's doing it is iconic though yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, though, right? This the, that that scene is going to get played all over the shop. But the thing is, it it it's pretending it's deeper than it is. Just because you've attached it to a comic book property doesn't make it deep. That is masking the fact that it is actually quite shallow. I don't think it's going into it in the extent that it believes it is. Well, I think that we're we're not going to agree. I mean, I I I'm sort of in the middle. I, I didn't think it was, you know, my f most favorite film. I didn't think it was that deep. I thought it was a little bit of a roller coaster ride with some pretty imagery. Um, and I thought it was slightly better than Bohemian Rhapsody, you know? So, like, <laughs> I mean. That's that not a comparison well, I was expecting. Saying, <laughs> if you look at who was in contention last year, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like we're we're all the, I, I just want to say the people who wrote I want to look at all the people, the critics who wrote four stars for Bohemian Rhapsody and then gave this one a two star. Absolutely. I just don't understand. Um, that's that's my point. I, well, maybe my expectations of the guy who made The Hangover was you know like was was not as high as you know. Uh, like I hope, as I, I should have. I hope you realize I'm expecting that to be on the Blu-ray cover now. Amanda Rogers Cinetopia. Well, it was better than Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> well, that's my theory. <laughs> there you go. Cinetopia's first pool quote. <laughs> on that note. So the next film uh, we're going to review is The Day Shall Come, directed by Chris Morris, that came out on October 11th across uh, UK cinemas. Uh, Luca, tell us a little bit about this film. So it's um, written and directed by Chris Morris, um, who people, I think, most prominently around the world will know for um, his last feature film in 2010 called Four Lions. Previously... Chris Morris has been sort of, at least in the late 90s to the early 2000s, a mainstay of British um, satirical television with the day-to-day -day, um, Brass Eye and um, Nathan Barley, which he co-wrote with uh, Black Mirror creator um, Charlie Brooker. 
and this um, we sort of, the story concerns a poor uh, I think his name is um, Moses Al Shabazz, um, played by uh, Marshawn newcomer Marshawn Davis. Um, Moses Al Shabazz is the leader of a four, well, technically six-person cult. Um, if you include his um, his wife and his daughter um, on the streets of Miami, who are trying to set up a farm uh, in this uh, you know in this urban center, um, but are facing eviction and more broadly speaking the um the threat of gentrification as a whole um on top of this um in order to get funding and to make certain points uh he starts looking to uh, questionable sources unbeknownst to him those sources are actual plants by the fbi who are trying to nail him um and also use him uh, to get other terrorist groups. So Jim and I, uh, we went to see this uh, a few weeks ago um, at a preview screening at the Cameo, um, which also featured a Q&A with Chris, um, and it was very good. Um, and I'd like to hear what Jim has to say, but just briefly to give one last point about the film is that the film, if you're, f <clears throat> if you're familiar with Four Lions, this is kind of treading on the same territory of him sort of... Um, giving his sort of uh, satirical take on the war on terror and, uh, you know, to put it bluntly, uh, stupid people uh, that are trying to be terrorists. But in this case, uh, unlike Four Lions, they're, they're, they're less stupid and there is more of a melancholic, um, more of a tragic angle than perhaps Four Lions. So, Jim, like, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree with your your last point there. Um, so, Four Lions was... I mean, I, I remember it being quite divisive at the time, right? Because, you know, I mean, you go back 2010, so we're going back nearly a decade now. And obviously it was centred on these four guys who were trying to carry out a terrorist attack at the... I think it was the London Marathon, right? Oh, it was, yeah. yeah. And, and, and basically, the, 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 you know, it was kind of a very Chris Morris approach to it in that they're all idiots, right? Mm. You know, it's not, um, you know, it's not poking fun at... The higher it, it's showing that, like you know, the, the, some a lot they're idiots, right? And you know that proved quite controversial. But it was an extremely well done film. I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of his work. What's remarkable, I find, about the day shall come is a little bit that last point you made, whereby this is a far more melancholic film than Four Lions, and I think it's got less razor sharpness than something like um, The Day Today or Brass Eye. And it's actually got quite a strong influence, I think, from the co-writer, Jesse Armstrong, mm -hmm. um, who most people know, I think, he was one of the writers on Peep Show. Right. Um, he's done other stuff on British television, like Fresh Meat and various other things. And the big thing, which is under his name at the moment, is probably the HBO series Succession. And it actually shares something with that, in that it treats its powerful characters, and by powerful characters here, I basically mean the federal authorities. Because there's an entire FBI Miami office which is depicted in this. The main one that we follow is Anna Kendrick, mm -hmm. plays a sort of young female special agent there who's kind of like putting up with a whole bunch of sexism and misogyny from her male counterparts and is trying to climb the greasy pole, right? And the main thing is both her, her character, and the, the male ones around her are treated very pitifully right? right they're kind of they're kind of shown to be pathetic power grabbing covering their own backsides 
figures. And that's kind of shown very early on when there's a sting operation done on a terrorist cell Mm -hmm. and it's just executed with the most ridiculous level of incompetence the fear of five yeah exactly it all centers around this kind of like this very very chris morris absurdist comedy and that still punctuates the film it's still through the whole thing you know um moses the leader of the star of six movement right which seems to be basically again a a vaguely absurdist blend of you know various kind of pseudo-religious movements yeah. uh, you know it's got it's got elements of islam there it's got elements of judaism it's got elements of christianity it's got elements of kind of like cultish yeah. farming collectives as well black santa you know so <laughs> the, the, yeah they're very funny there's some very funny scenes centered centered around that so that kind of underscores the whole thing but really the thing that kind of stood out to me and it sounds a little bit ridiculous when you think about some of the the imagery you'll see in the trailers and some of the stuff that Chris Morris has done before, is there's a real sadness to this film. Right. It's it, There's a real sort of like depression at the sort of circumstances that lead to the events in the film, which are obviously like, I mean, they're obviously amped up. And at that Q&A, you know, it starts off like, is it based on 100 real stories? 100 story? real stories, yeah. yeah. Right? And... Chris Morris has also and his you know team have also done a lot of research around these sort of ridiculous things where people are set up to do things so they can be taken you know this kind of like performative counterterrorism right. almost and you know the events in the film are obviously amped up a little bit but the thing is it's more there really is this sadness that this is necessary and the people to get trampled over in the process of doing this and that's not something i've seen Hmm. in his work before or at least not underscoring the whole thing and that's what really sets it apart for me i think there's some people who are going to go into this expecting four lines again right they're going to expect the pedophilia special of brass eye they're going to expect (laughs) the absurd quotability of nathan barley and they're not they're going to get bits of that but that's not what this film is doing. It's really quite sad at the human cost of institutional absurdity. Well, I, I agree. I think for all of the um, shortcomings that you might get from the film, I think the, that uh, that sad emotional core is... I, it's really what sold me. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, there is there is an interesting tension, I think, between, you know, there, Chris Morris's, you know, precise research... And then what Jesse Armstrong might bring to the table, which is character. Um, and it's like it's it's two threads that are sort of pulling at each other where it's trying to give you a satirical viewpoint of a broad issue. And then which you also had in four lines, there's this, you know, family core, um, you know, like that great thing from um Four lines where you know the father is trying to explain jihad through the Lion King, um, which is brilliant. Um, what personally watching this film, it was I did feel at certain points that you know there's a slight oh well okay this is you know copy and you know for, you know copy and paste four lines just a little bit but you know it's Chris Morris it's his property it's like that's that's fine. Um, that having said that, I think um, some uh, Marshawn Davis, uh, the you know the this new the, you know, I've never seen him anything before. I think this is his first film. Um, is incredible. I, I he's so arresting. I mean, I I don't know. Like um, he reminded me a little bit of um, Trayvon Rhodes in Moonlight, 
where he's this sort of hulking figure that's intense and when you know when you see the character giving his you know speeches and stuff like that he's like oh yeah this is the leader of a of this cult thing and then this like hulking tenderness with his family um and then the third register which is just the sort of chris morris i don't want to say stupidity but more naivety i guess is is, is the thing um on top of that i um slightly disagree i like i think the the, the razor sharpness i think the writing the, there are some really good things especially in the fbi like my favorite bit if, if, like if i can recount it is um there there is a bit near the end of the film where anna kendrick has been she sort of screws up and she's she's been asked by her boss to uh do something dishonest but that's ultimately going to save her hide it's going to save her boss's hide it's going to save the image of the fbi um and she starts repeating what uh her boss she's trying to like figure out it's like what what has he just told me and he says to her it's like if you say it slower you eliminate all the contradictory elements <laughs> that's like that's brilliant wordplay like and i think that that scene and that setting the fbi office i i also think is done extremely well right i think where that comes from is jesse armstrong right because the other thing that mm. jesse armstrong is famous for being a uh, co-writer and one of the main creative forces behind it is the thick of it um and what the thick of it did so brilliantly was just puncture the importance of um, government, basically, right? Right. It, you know, I mean, the thick of it, many people have seen it set in basically, a, you know, nothing government department that's basically meaningless. And it's all kind of like the petty office politics and self-importance mm. and self-interest, which leads to these absurd you know absurd machinations going on right. right and i think they've taken that and they've applied it to counter-terrorism in the fbi really pretty brilliantly in exactly the same way they took the thick of it and they amped that up into what became in the loop right which was a film version of it and they basically took right. that petty stuff and transposed it to a war in the middle east i think that i think the same trick has been performed here and it's mm -hmm. been done very well I think in terms of the, you know, and there is a lot of really funny lines and funny dialogue that really underscore what's going on, right? So when I say it's razor, it basically it's razor sharp in edges, right? It does, it does, it does right. in uh, moments rather. It does, it does have that, but it's not that kind of like persistent punching mm. in the face, which I sometimes think of uh, Chris Morris's work as having. The main thing is, if there's any criticism of the film, I think it is trying to deal with quite a lot. Right. Um, you know, I mean, there's elements of how African-Americans are treated in the States in terms of, like, police enforcement. Mm -hmm. That's in there. We're revisiting the war on terror stuff from Four Lions. That's in there. There's the gentrification of neighborhoods in, uh, well, I mean, I was going to say American cities, but globally, really, as well. That's in there. There's how you deal with uh, treatment of uh, people whose mental health isn't the best, that's in there. All these elements are in there, and like they don't all necessarily get the, the time they deserve, to be honest, but I'm kind of impressed that in this satirical framework, they get as much time as they do, to be honest. I would, I would say the the excessive bit, um, it really sort of happens in one uh, sort of midsection of the film, is that there's some slightly... Um, fantasize supernatural elements of a crane being shot down um by you know the will of god almost and then a talking horse um which i understand considering this is from the mind of chris morris but i but that's the thing it's like considering this, there's this whole thing about the film as well that they they were it was 
some parts of the film were sort of uh, they had no permission to shoot on some of the streets and there was like all these telephoto shots like you know literally in Miami um, and I thought like that that would be an, an interesting aspect of the film those supernatural things had they sort of been a consistent through line in the film but because there's all this like you know you have a massive disparity of focus between yeah the people on the street and then the guys uh, as Chris Morris said that are you know shooting um, what do you call them the uh, in you know the FBI office like you know that are just having fun almost with these nerf guns nerf guns that's that's it yeah um, so I think like those were that was the bit of fat on the script uh, I felt um, yeah yeah, I think, um, you know, so it is a little bit baggy in places in mm. terms of, like, where it maybe does lose a bit of sharpness. The performances are great, though. Like, I agree, Marshawn Davis is, he's really good, actually. And it's yeah. a very, very, it's actually a very hard role to do because you need to be comedic. You need right. to show, you need to show a bit of stupidity, but it's more coming from a place of naivety. But at the same time, you need to be able to do this stuff where he's giving his sermons, where he has... I mean, okay, yes, it's made. It's a comically small movement, but he still has people attached to it. So he needs to have that that kind of level of charisma to pull that off. Right. And the way that that's balanced with the the self doubt about the effect that all these various things have on his family, he does that very well. And there's a segment towards like more or less right at the film, and again without getting into spoilers, where there's something revealed about kind of like stuff he's been perceived he's mm -hmm. perceiving where and this is where the sadness comes in for me and it, it really hit me in the gut it was right. just like the, the the end of this film is sure it's underscored with humor but it's it's a laughing at how sad this is like how this situation that the uh, moses character has got himself into has been allowed to snowball ridiculously and right. there are multiple points where he tries to get himself out of it or try and turn it around in some way but he can't do it and he can't do it because nobody is looking out for him because everybody is looking mm -hmm. at their own self-interest and this is where kind of some of the the commentary aspects of the film come in and i think it's really it's really well done i really I, I, I i've seen some people have an issue with it i yeah. don't i think it's really well add, done i would add with performances as well i guess um anna kendrick is is um uh, Anna Kendrick is really interesting as well as a character that sort of, you know, is a careerist and is a ruthless careerist. But at the same time, you see some of her actions come out of an empathy towards um, just the fact that his cult is not a terrorist group. They're they're incapable of of pulling anything off. Uh, they wouldn't dangerously know what to do with a nuke if they had one. Um, and her, and then, like, you know, Dennis O'Hare is, like, her boss. Like, the, the sort of, like, bumbling villainy um, of his character is... Uh, those performances are really interesting to look at as something complex, um, yet still bumbling. Um, so, yeah, it came out on October 11th. Uh, I'm sure it'll be screened many places. It's also worth checking out some of the stuff that Chris Morris has said himself around the film yeah. um, about, you know, like, satire and the post-truth age Check stuff. out the Channel 4 uh, interview he did. Yeah, so hearing him talk about it, like maybe after you watch the film, would also give a little bit of context of what he was trying to do, and I think it's right. very interesting. Okay.
Okay, so the next film that we are going to review is a nonfiction, or also known as Double V, uh, directed by Olivier Assayas. Um, it's a comedy in a very French sense, and I love to say that because I always think, where's the comedy in a lot of French <laughs> comedies? Um, with a capital F, French with a capital F, starring Juliette Binoche and Guillaume Canet, two of like the most beautiful people. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, yes, it's a very sophisticated, talky film that looks into the French literary world and the current change that's happening within the industry. And as I say, capital, very French, because of course there's clandestine love affairs. That's, that's what they do really well. Um, the plot revolves around um, a writer, uh, Lawrence, and his good friend, um, who is his publisher, Alan, who's basically agreed not to publish his latest novel. And the publisher himself is considering uh, taking the entire company digital, thanks to uh, the you know, one of his employees and his mistress, Lore. Um, and then you find out, you know, everybody's sleeping with everybody, and you know, it just keeps going that way. Um, uh, but yeah, it's really talking about the death of the book society the digital age and what you know like all it really gets into these like middle aged anxieties around like what do I do with my life and um, I almost like hearken it to like a Noah Baumbach film like for French but like also and also sort of the discussion of art and I think of a little bit about the square but um, and for me personally I didn't like I, I didn't find there to be that much humor with it it was just very very matter of fact and I enjoy sort of, um, I think we talked about this a couple of months ago with the souvenir, where I really don't mind having these conversations, um, the kind of lighthearted middle class like problems and discussing them. But for this one, I didn't like, I thought this, you know, it, it was better done with um, Claire Denis, like Let the Sunshine In and, you know, and, and, and a lot of other films that I've seen that it didn't, it didn't scream to me like, you know anything other than wow what a french film yeah i'm pleased you said the, the french with the capital f thing like it, it, it is it, 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 it's hard to describe unless you see it. it is very french you know there's a lot of a lot of people sitting around rooms having you know philosophical Wine. artsy discussions and things like a cliched version of you know what i think of french in my head but <laughs> nevertheless um it's funny, that I actually think the original title of this in French, uh, you know, it means double lives, and I think that actually probably sums up the, the film a little bit better than non-fiction. Uh, like I think um, Olivier Sayas wanted to call it, I think he wanted to call it e-book or something, but he decided that <laughs> but he decided that it was far too kind of like cold and sterile sounding. Um, I, I, I must admit, I did quite like this film. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to see a film like this, which is largely based around you know in terms of like what actually happens it's based around a lot of the personal interactions between these characters right so you've got um you know alan is the editor and he's editing or not editing as it happens the latest book from uh leonard uh he's decided not to publish it so you've got their relationship and then their relationships with their respective wives and then there's a young sort of like digitally focused uh woman who's brought into the employ of Alan's uh, publishing firm. And it, it's quite interesting to see a film like this, which is largely based around these people talking and philosophizing and having discussions, which has very modern sensibilities. Uh, you know, when, it, when they all have these artistic discussions, it's all based around kind of like, you know, what is the impact of the digital age? Uh, what is the impact of 
the likes of Twitter on literary criticism and all the rest. Of it. And the discussions are actually quite interesting, right? I, I got a lot out of them, but I think your tolerance for it is probably directly related to how much tolerance you would have for having these discussions yourself in real life. Now, as it happens, like I, I will wax lyrical about this with people who, who want to, so I got plenty out of it. It, it. it could... I could easily see somebody thinking it's very ponderous, but I really enjoyed it because it's nice to see a film like this that is tackling these from a slightly more modern-facing perspective. And I think all the performances are also really, really very good. I mean, like, you know, Juliette Binoche, of course, like, you know, we we know all about her and she's put in some excellent, excellent performances. This is another one. But also Guillaume Canet as Alain, the editor, he's extremely good as well. I think it's a very solid performance from him. And then I apologize to any French speakers, but I think it's Vincent McCagney plays uh, the author. He's a lot of good value in this. He has a lot of very, you know, good lines, which you get a little bit of humor out of, but it's a very, they all play off each other very naturally. It's clearly like a very good ensemble cast. It's been, it's been cast extremely well. Um, how much you get out of it, I think, really depends on how much tolerance you have for these lo- these existential discussions around publishing they have. I liked it, but, you know, I think I could easily see how somebody might not. I'd like to just interject back because I think that kind of conversation seems a little dated to me because you said it was a sort of a modern take but i feel like i've been that conversation's been happening within the publishing industry for 10 years it's more to do with seeing that on film right yes you're quite right this that that discussion has been kicking around for a long time you know i mean pretty much as soon as you know ebooks became a thing and you know as soon as you know, you start to see people taking for, like, you know, short social media takes. So, yes, that conversation's been happening for a long time. I haven't seen that reflected in film a lot. You know, a lot of artistic discussion between characters and films, I don't think is necessarily... Mm. It, it might allude to it, but it doesn't really get into the weeds of it. Whereas this one not only gets into the weeds, it gets into it, they roll around in the weeds and they stay there. Um, so I think that's more than I haven't seen it on film necessarily. I'd, I'd also just add that I think, and I, I, I read this somewhere else, but it is funny that the French are taking this on in a similar way that, you know, they're the ones who are sort of the ones who are not willing to take Netflix. And they're not, you know, so it's like if this art house film talking about the whole issue of art house films having to kind of take the, you know, like the digital era and they're resisting it. So... I, I, I thought that was a quite a good point. Um, I I also really liked it. Um, I didn't really know um, anything about it, and then I read the synopsis before I watched it. It's like okay, and then the first scene is about a publisher talking to one of his friends who's an author, and they're you know he's he's rejecting the book that he's. So it's like okay, this is you know quite merry and you know very French. It's like but you know I love this stuff. So like I'm and then in the next scene. They're talking about search engine optimization. I'm like, this, I, I really like this because like it was engaging. I was like, I, you know, as, as someone that's also concerned about those things, I was like, as a big reader, it's like, I, yeah, I, I can understand why people might phase out of this. But like, um, I love French cinema. I'm interested in these topics and these performances are great. And I, I really liked it. Um, it also reminded me of the film does feel a bit like, um, like a minister in the government has made sort of a French cultural policy essay. Uh, like, you know, it, 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 it actually felt like um, some of the recent films that Soderbergh has been making. Um, if you guy, have you guys seen High Flying Bird? Um, that film is about 
a 90 minute film about a lockout in the NBA and this guy trying to sign all these players on it's um it could the premise could seems boring but it's it's riveting and I found this to be the same thing it's like it was you know like a niche subject and who cares about this stuff and then but it's written really beautifully and the performances are great um and 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 some of the jokes are so centered on european cinema the michael hanukkah jokes in this film yeah. are really good um as well as some of the meta humor at the end with julia Binoche, uh which the, I, look, it was good. I I really liked it. So I think this is like the anti-film of Joker here because right. like if you're really into SEO optimization and <laughs> discussion of the the publishing industry going into the digital age, then this is the film for you. Like I mean, like that that's kind of a funny thing. How many people are really you know talking about that? The only thing I will say about it is the film was shot on, interestingly, like for, for a film that's trying to talk about modern issues, it was shot on 16 mil. Mm. Um, I didn't know that. Which uh, um, it doesn't do it a lot of service because I think it's poorly lit. Uh, like there are some scenes that were really dark. Mm. Uh, yeah, they were. And I thought it, w- it would have been really interesting if you, okay, 16 mil and you make it look sleek. And it tried to do that, but there were some stuff that's like, okay, You've done the performances of the scripts, but just like, you know, just extra light. It's interesting, too, because of the souvenir like thing I mentioned, you know, similar sort of topics. I think the the other thing I quite liked about the film, and this is why I think the, the French title Double Lives is actually a little bit better. There's a lot of discussion. When they're having these discussions, there's a lot about, you know, what is perceived to be the future and what actually is the future in terms of, you know, what statistics bear it out. And a lot of that centers around um, e-books. You know, like people talk about e-books being the future, but then they mention, oh, well, the numbers are actually declining, audio books are it, and actually, you know, physical book sales are on the up. And it's this idea of what you perceive to be real, what you perceive to be the truth, and then what actually is. And I think a lot of these, you know, these very artistic, philosophical discussions that they have around art actually gel very nicely with the behavior of the characters because like, every single character in this film is duplicitous in some way right they are all hiding something they are all presenting a truth which is not actually genuine and it even goes into other aspects of the character such as so leonard's uh, wife valerie is a political consultant in the film and she has this um client that she's trying to get elected and basically she has to kind of cover up some of his misdeeds so this idea of you know what what we perceive to be correct or what we perceive to be an objective reality and what is actually happening that's woven through their discussions but it's also woven through their actions and that's why i actually think the title non-fiction does it a bit of a disservice i don't think it's a particularly particularly yeah, good one for the film but this idea of double lives where you know, you've got that clash between what people think is real and what is actually going on i find that a really interesting way to to blend it and i think the film did that very well yeah, I, I mean, my thing is, it's just funny that I'm the one who is, I feel like, a massive, massive French fan, and I love these kinds of talkie films, and yet I think maybe I've just seen this film so many times in so many different ways that I just wasn't as impressed, particularly with this one, and didn't think it really, you know, it, it really st- stood out for me. Um, I, I would just add, uh, uh, next to, you know, Guillaume Canet and um, Julia Pinoche, I think the, the one that stood out for me was... 
I think her name is Nora Hamrazi, who plays Leonard's uh, Leonard's yeah. wife, and she's um what I read she's a humorist. She's not even a, you know a full time actress. Um, she in you know and within the theme of double lives is it's really good performance because she starts off as being kind of stuck up and cold mm -hmm. she doesn't have time for leonard but then again who would considering he cheats on everyone <laughs> um and then there are sections where she's particularly you know in the end but in the middle section where she's so tender she's talking about like you know would you leave me and stuff like this and i thought her performance was really a standout of like she doesn't actually seem to have her own sort of like everyone seems to be cheating except her from what i remember well um, and i also think she's like a positive force here because she has like a serious job and i think that yeah. that's a bit of the thing yeah. like the rest of them are just kind of these artists and you know she's dealing with like on the front lines yeah. of a political and, and, and life in particular one scene as well where she's on the political front lines and she's literally she goes out for a cigarette but she does she hardly even lights it because she just can't stand these conversations i was <laughs> like I, I love her like it's great if you like french films yeah. seo optimization yeah. and this talk of the <laughs> publishing business in france uh going digital this is the film for you and who doesn't like seo optimization <laughs> actually hold on, it should just be se optimization we've got yeah. a redundant oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> true yeah. true okay so it even works even if right. you don't know what you're talking Geek about talk is over <laughs> next <laughs> So the final film we'll be reviewing is uh, By the Grace of God, and Jim Jim saw this and will review it for us. Yep, so By the Grace of God is coming out on October 25th. It's playing at a couple of film festivals besides that before then, uh, directed by Francois Ozon, and basically it follows the story. It's a real story, um, which has been going on even until quite recently about um, child abuse in the Catholic Church. In particular, it's following this tale of... Uh, one uh, priest, Bernard Prenat, um, who I think it was in Lyon, and basically the cover-up which, or the lack of resolution in dealing with his uh, crimes by Cardinal Barbaran in that sort of like period, I think it was kind of like late 80s, early 90s. And basically what follows is primarily uh, three or four men who were victims of this abuse and the film opens with uh, Alexander who is basically he seems to have worked past these issues but he finds out that the priest in question is back in the local diocese and is working with children once again after basically he he's been assured that he would not and the opening of the film is basically his correspondence in dealing with the local the local clergy and the local kind of administrators of the the church the catholic church about getting him reassigned or you know expose this and he's a very devout catholic and it starts off with that correspondence it then shifts to a second character francois who's played by uh, denny menoshe and basically, he is a completely different character, right? He's a far more combative character. He is an atheist. And basically, his um, parents know about this abuse that happened. And again, he's tried to, to move past it. And basically, their, their attempts to get this dealt with long after the fact kind of coalesce. And they form this um, association to try and get the Catholic Church to deal with this, to get... Uh, Prenat to 
no longer work with children and even to get him defrocked and basically try and get them to actually address this. And it's a very interesting film, mainly because of the difference in the characters that take this on. Um, the film that actually brings the most to mind is actually Spotlight. Um, so, you know, the Oscar winner that dealt with the, the journalistic aspect of similar things happening in uh, New England. And interestingly, I think Francois Ozon actually considered making this a documentary because around about the time this was released, the priest in question was actually on trial, or rather the cardinal was, for his kind of mistreatment of the whole thing. So th there is a certain amount of way that story has moved on since the film premiered at uh, Berlin. And it's, it's interesting he conceived it as a documentary, and then he said, I think, once he started talking to the, survi cause the survivors, because all these characters are based on real characters, once he started talking to them, they were imagining a film more in the vein of Spotlight. So it, it's very obvious where that sort of inspiration has come from. And it's a slightly odd film for us to imagine Francois Ozon making to a certain extent, but you can see where that came from. What's very interesting about the film, where it differs from Spotlight, is really in those characters, because it's very, it's far more saturated in the attitudes of the Catholic Church. Um, you know, where Spotlight was also looking at from a far more journalistic perspective. But it's really dealing with the, this very particularly Catholic mix of issues that this brings up. Um, you know, there's a lot of guilt on the part of both perpetrators and survivors. There's how the survivors try to work through that in the context of, in the case of Alexander, his continuing faith, he's still a very devout Catholic, so he doesn't want to you know, disown and shame the church in the same way that the Francois character does, where he's a very strong atheist and is very much okay with going for the jugular of the church itself. And the way that these survivors of the same or very similar abuse try to deal with this in different ways, and I think the way that that is dealt with in the film is extremely well done. I think it's a very well-made film as well. You know, there's a lot of kind of very dark interiors, you know, where basically, you know, there's almost literally this cloud over the characters, and then as they start to try and move through that, that advances. So I think it, it's a very interesting film. I think it's far more rooted in Catholic thought and kind of the church around this rather than necessarily the horrors of the abuse itself i mean there's a lot of very difficult discussions happening in the film but i think the way it deals with these questions of how people work through it when they still have faith but that faith has been tarnished by the institution that's supposedly the protector of it is a very interesting thing and i think it's a very powerful film to watch and it has a lot going for it in that respect i was going to ask how does it compare with ozan's other films particularly like i you know i guess france as well um, which I think it was his last film, dealt with kind of history as well mm. and, and things re-emerging from the past. It's a far more restrained film. Um, you know, and some of that comes from the material, but also just in the way it's... just in the way it's shot. Like I said, there's a lot of dark interiors. There's a lot of focusing on, you know, people's expressions. And it, 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 it's not a film with a lot of flourishes, right it's very much more rooted in the performances and i think again this is another film much like the other ones we've spoken about today 
that is extremely well cast. Um, you know, so the, the way that those characters play off each other is also very based in the, the physicality of the characters, right? So Melville Popon, my French pronunciation is absolutely terrible, but the, the, the actor who plays Alexander, he's this very kind of like thin, clean-cut, you know, besuited individual, right? He's very buttoned up and clearly he is, and he's the one who is a devout Catholic who's trying to deal with it all internally and then you contrast that with uh, Francois who's this you know slightly unshaven more kind of boisterous and combative individual and again the casting of Denny Menoshe on that is extremely good so like basically I think it's far more rooted in character and performance perhaps uh, there's less flourish than you might expect but overall it is a very good film it's a very powerful film it's quite long, to be honest, but one thing it does very well is it blends the different stories quite well. They're quite segmented, but they all feel part of the whole because it starts with Alexander, it moves to Francois, uh, who's kind of working with another another victim called uh, Gilles, and then the most powerful segment from somebody who's not moved on is another character called Emmanuel, and it blends those three segments very well when it could be quite easy for them to feel disjointed, but it manages to do that extremely well, I think. So that's coming out on October 25th. Uh, if anybody finds themselves in Cambridge, it's screening at the Cambridge Film Festival. Uh, and I think it is Curzon that are distributing it in the UK, so no doubt you can probably get it on demand as well. But I would certainly say check it out, especially if you liked Spotlight. I think it would make a very good double bill with that. Wonderful. So I sat down with Tim Courtney, who has a short film screening at the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, actually on the opening night on October 24th. So it will form part of the Out of Frame segment of short films. Uh, and I think, is that not the one which is showing after the Cinetopia networking event? Yeah, so it's at the Film House, I think, at 8.40, um, out of frame. It's the opening night, and before that, uh, there's the uh, Cinetopia networking night. It's one of our general nights, but it's in, in tandem. It's the launch of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival then, at BrewDog, before that. Yeah, so if you come along to that and then go to the screening after, then you will see this film, which is My Loneliness is Killing Me. Uh, it's done extremely well on the film festival circuit to date, and it's actually already won a BAFTA for Best Short Film. Uh, it's got a lot of very good performances in it. It deals with a lot of uh, very interesting issues in a very short time frame, and it's an extremely well-made short film. Uh, Tim spoke to me about the film, so we started off with just asking him to bring us into the film a little bit and what it's about, and then we started talking about some of the things that it deals with in the film. Tim Courtney, uh, director of My Loneliness is Killing Me, the BAFTA award-winning short film. Uh, it's gone around a lot of festivals, and it's been doing very well for itself. Uh, Tim, first of all, thank you for talking to me. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about the film, what it's about, uh, and set the scene for those who, who haven't seen it? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's largely about loneliness in general, but we're obviously seeing it through a queer prism uh, on this sort of LGBT scene where you know because we live in a world where you know people can have like you know sexual connections you know almost on tap with the likes of tinder and, and grinder and things like that that um that it's actually becoming you know harder and harder for people to have you know more you know more meaningful connections and you know finding you know love uh, and trying to separate the sort of physical from from the emotional and 
so th- yeah so this film is about um two men who are kind of each kind of lonely in their own different ways and you know they and they ultimately find find out you know more about themselves through this this uh this hookup that they have and uh, so one man is uh is he's quite conservative he's uh he's you know he's married and he's uh, but things aren't going to, you know, to plan with his his marriage, uh, and he's constantly having these um, these uh, shallow hookups with other with other men, and and then there's another man who is, uh, you know, he's quite flamboyant, he's uh, he's he's queer, and he's kind of more, you know, for lack of a better word, more kind of uh, effeminate, and com- you know, feels like he is comfortable with himself in that way, but there's, you know, but. With the thing way things have shifted uh, in society, we've got this, um, you know, we've got a lot of men like like him, like Elliot, who uh, who feel like they're they're marginalised by their own community, because um, you know a lot of men are, are are feel feel they are more masculine and they want to be with more masculine guys, despite um, you know, but they you know they do see themselves as gay, and there's lots of uh, you know. Uh, men who feel sort of marginalized for that and then so that's why this this guy feels quite lonely even though he's got lots of friends around him he's out you know he seems like the life of the party he um he just you know he can't find you know this this deeper sort of emotional connection so yeah so that's what the the film's kind of largely about and uh so it was written by michael richardson and obviously you, you direct how did how did you come to be involved in the project how did that come about the so the project really came about through Siobhan, uh, the the producer actually, she, I believe I got this right, <laughs> but yeah, so she, so she sort of approached Michael and said, hey, I want to to put in a pro uh, a project uh, to the Scottish Film Talent Network, um, New Talent Shorts, uh, and I've got this, you know, she had this sort of idea about doing something to do with the the sort of uh, loneliness epidemic in the queer uh, community. And uh, just want to see what you know what Michael thought, and so they put in uh, an application, and so the application right at the start of the the process with the SFTN didn't have a director attached. So when they were shortlisted, because SFTN shortlisted uh, you know twelve to fourteen films every year, and then uh, and then the only funds like six. So my loneliness was one of the. Uh, the, the 12 in the shortlist and um so yeah so they SFTN said you know this this would this would be a really good project for for this guy me um and Michael had a very specific sort of like look that he wanted for the you know for the film um so he you know he talks very much about how he had a you know a kind of a music video aesthetic which uh and so because you know I've got a, you know, a huge background to do music videos. Um, you know, he, he quite liked my portfolio, so I came in and I met with um, with Siobhan and we talked about uh, talked about the themes and and the film and where where I kind of you know from reading this this paragraph because um, originally the film was meant to be just set in one room, um, and you know if anyone knows anything about my work, I'm, you know I'm very very visual and I do like to tell stories with you know with with little dialogue at times and. Um, so I, you know, I, I said, well, you know, I love the, the idea of this film and I love how it's, you know, even though it's told through this, uh, this queer prism that, you know, it, it, it can relate to like anyone, uh, around the world, but, you know, and it's, but it's such, it's so beautifully, um, 
it can be so beautifully told through this this uh, particular uh, mindset. Um, but I want to kind of like I wanted to know who the characters were uh, at the front of the film because setting it in just one room with the two characters um you don't really get a sense of who they are first before you're you're put into this situation so i really wanted to know as much about the characters at the front end of the film before we suddenly put them into that little that little space and see how you know how these two characters sort of clash and i think that, that was the kind of big influence there so um yeah so when you're on sftn you go through this rigorous um development process with um with workshops and then you get you know you're signed a mentor and then you're doing drafts and drafts and drafts of the outline itself before you even get to script stage and it's you know it's it's just kind of getting people used to that uh, level of scrutiny because when you going to make a feature film you know i no doubt going to be going you know you're not going to shoot your first draft you know um, so the film, you know, it, it, it shifted around quite a lot and a lot of themes were uh, were brought to the table and then ultimately dropped and because, you know, you're only making sort of 15 minutes. Um, so that's where it kind of, yes, yeah, so that's what's, you know, really started there. But yeah, but the thing that really, the thing that actually really drew me to the project itself, because um, like, uh, this is the first film I've ever directed that I've not written myself. And, um, and I've been shortlisted before with SFTN and not getting the funding. And, uh, but I'm also, um, I don't consider myself one of those directors that only directs their own writing. And, um, but as a director, you want to feel a real close emotional connection to what you're doing because you're, you know, you're going to spend the next couple of years of your life, uh, you know, a whole year you know, developing it and getting and then shooting it and then, You've got a couple of years on the roads uh, with festivals if it's you know if if you've done a good job obviously, um, so you kind of want to be feel that emotional connection because then you know you you're going to make your best work. Um, so the thing that uh, really drew me to the project uh, one was because uh, you know Michael comes with such uh, a great reputation um, for being a, an interesting writer and. And I was interested because I knew that he was pushing himself out of his comfort zone because um, a lot of his stuff's like television and theatre and he, um, and everything comes with such a kind of you know great sense of humour. And my work is kind of quite you know dark and I'm always being criticised for everything being so depressing. And um, so I thought I just, I just thought that that was going to be an interesting way of working with someone. But then also everything. And I said this in the pit in our pitch actually to uh, SFTN for when we uh, got to the funding stage, that all of my work has been about loneliness and focusing on characters who feel on the outside of of uh, of somewhere. Um, almost fo always focusing on these kind of outsiders. And the thing that interested me about this was uh, I got to work with a film which essentially has two protagonists, and they're both. Uh, lonely and, and outsiders uh, in their own completely different ways so it meant I can really explore you know two different sort of sides of that and yeah that was that was such a, a great thing for a, for a director to get their teeth into and it kind of found that really exciting so it was, it was more it, it struck me on that sort of emotional level first before even thinking about you know uh, any sort of visual aesthetics and what you're going to do with it visually on a, a similar note, I, I noticed that basically you, you've driven the 
the music for the film quite heavily as well. Um, well, I wouldn't say quite heavily. Um, I do have a... I mean, my first BAFTA New Talent uh, nomination was uh, for was for music writing. So, and I've written, and up until uh, Sean's recent film, I've written all of Sean Hughes's uh, scores up until uh, Bunny. Um, but obviously, because we both got commissioned at the same time, I was kind of too busy doing my loneliness to uh, to even like entertain the idea of <laughs> scoring Bunny. Um, but because we got the money, and um, you know, I'd always scored my own films because we couldn't afford to do, to get anyone else to uh, to do music. Um, so now we, you know, we had a bit of funding. I kind of wanted to to uh, to let go of you know those reins and give someone else a chance. Well, give myself a chance to work with someone else. And uh, Matt Collings is a you know a sound artist as well as a, a composer who I found you know really really interesting. And his his um, uh, I've actually designed uh, two of his albums that he released. Um, the kind of uh, the vinyl artwork, and um, and I've just got to such a massive appreciation of uh, of his work, and his work always, you know, you listen to it at home on headphones and stuff, you always feel like you should be watching something uh, to, to go along with, because his, his work is, uh, I don't want to use the word cinematic, because when you think cinematic, you think rousing scores and, you know, um, like John Williams and all that sort of stuff and his stuff's way more minimal and it's all about textures and bizarre sounds and things like that so I really wanted to work with him on this and um, so the music that I brought to the table was more the sort of was Elliot uh, his character you know he he's um, he's always he, he's very much into his nightlife so we see him in, in this nightclub and and, uh, and I was always speaking to to Matt about like having these kind of like really dirty synth sounds and things like that and I feel like I should probably you know be, you know do that kind of stuff and then bring that to him to sort of mix and master so that's basically what we did there is I did the sort of um, you know the nightclub stuff and the, the songs as it were all this sort of music that, that Elliot listens to in the scenes um, I did that and anything that's actually scores the, the, the film itself uh, it was all Matt's work. In terms of what has driven the the story, and what uh, Michael put down on the page, what was it? I, I feel like it's a little bit of a response to other depictions of LGBT people. Where was it that maybe Michael and yourself felt that was falling short? Because there's kind of two strands going on. There's the two characters, Jack and Elliot. It kind of splits apart this maybe rather homogenized view that there is of that community because they're very different um or was it more just a simple lack of stories like this because as you say it's very much based in their loneliness and they are lonely but again in very different ways is it a bit of both or was it you know maybe more of one than the other yeah a bit of both but um you know Michael Michael always wanted to make this film because he felt that um, there wasn't enough stories about men like him. You don't see very many uh, portraits of of men like that, you know, and and in, especially in television as well. You know, your gay and queer men are either the sort of the comic relief to to a straight female character 
or they are like you know they're masculine guys who go to the football and but you know you know there's this whole broad spectrum of different personalities um in the lgbt community that you know people are you know i've always just always kind of said that people are you know people are people um and that was always where i was coming from um but i know that uh, michael felt really strongly that he wanted to kind of put on screen uh something that kind of reflected uh someone that you know someone like him and other people who identify like you know like him and you know something that kind of had a bit more truth to it um and i remember when uh siobhan actually siobhan came to us and said because uh, she had an idea who she wanted to cast as elliot and uh and she wanted to cast a uh, a black man um someone she knew um and as soon as i'd had that idea that elliot was going to be a person of color i couldn't let go of that because as you know as a person of color of myself that kind of really brought something to uh, to the table that i could really invest in emotionally and there you know and again there just aren't enough kind of uh, portraits of, of people in color in, in in cinema uh and then by, by you know putting him in this sort of film and you know someone who kind of look uh someone who people like you know michael can relate to a lot more and someone who's not go you know who's going to be you know going to be queer who's going to be effeminate or camp or however way you want to to sort of put that you know we have a lot of people that can really kind of get behind that character and it's not something you kind of you see a lot and remember when we were pitching it to to sftn and and to other people and you know when you say that he's a person of color that inst- you know people always go to this like you know um this place this this you know character they've seen before and people were trying uh, some people were tr- were kind of like worried about elliot being black because they were like oh you know so he's gonna be like titus from from kimmy schmidt you know and we were like no just because just because he's 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 black and you know and queer doesn't doesn't mean that the character has to be played exactly like another character you've seen on screen before and and that's the funny thing when you're making uh you know these types of um minority uh films i guess uh people kind of go to the only sort of other minority films they've seen before and then be like also oh, like this and it's like no <laughs> and the more and more you see these sort of like stereotypes come out the more and more you realize you know what this uh this film's going to be important for that and i remember uh having a screening at kelvin hall this year in february and it was uh specifically um directed at queer uh, persons of color and and i went along and it was it was just so it just warmed my heart because it was the first time i got to engage with people of color and figure out what you know how they react because you know we know uh from screenings of of of, uh, how the larger lgbtq community uh have embraced the film but you know i really want to hear from the people of color and and uh, there were two black artists that night doing a sort of Q&A about the, the entire program and the way they were talking about Elliot and 
and I brought a lot of my sort of personal experiences of being uh, an Asian man, you know, growing up as an Asian man and feeling, you know, I remember telling a story once that, um, you know, I, I asked a girl out once and, you know, and she was like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I'm not attracted to men outside my race. And, you know, and it was like heartbreaking because, you know, that's something you, you just cannot control. Uh, you know, I can cut my hair differently. I can wear different clothes, you know, but I cannot change the color of my skin. And in seeing how other people of color can relate to Elliot in that way and how, you know, their heartbreak for Elliot, that character, uh, in those kind of ways. And it, and, it, and it felt so nice to me. And I was, and I remember leaving the Kelvin Hall uh, that, that night and I was just unlocking my bike and I had this, this really great kind of smile on my face and <laughs> this guy winds down his window, he's driving past and he shouts at me, Oi, chinky! You look like a woman! <laughs> and drove off. And, you know, and that kind of brought me down, down a wee peg and I got really annoyed and it's just like, you know, but it also further just kind of illustrates the point that, um, you know, telling these stories, it's, you know, how important it is and, you know, and show other people's stories and hopefully by other people watching it, they can learn a bit, you know, about the struggles and, and how you react to other people. So the, the the film's done done very well on the film festival circuit. You know, any particular highlights of taking it on that sort of like very large festival circuit? We screened the film in places that have you know where homosexuality has only been acceptable, like legal on a legal uh, stance for you know only in recent history. And being able to to screen in these places, it's it, you know it's a very 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 humbling uh, experience, um, and that was something that a uh, it just blows my mind. It was wasn't something that I was you know expecting, and because you make films and you kind of think okay it's going to play the, hopefully play at these sort of festivals, and you always have these big festivals that you kind of you, you hope you get, and um, and it's not played as many uh mainstream festivals as uh as we maybe have hoped but um it's played all of the biggest um lgbt festivals we can we can play at and you know the response has been insane but it it's when it plays at these um these festivals where you know you know people of of, of the lgbt community have lost their lives just you know just existing and here we are uh, um in you know screening our film there and it's just like you know you it's it's just it's just quite an overwhelming kind of thought you don't get very many opportunities to make a film uh like this so the the film is screening at the edin short film festival uh, i'm sure audiences are going to love it and uh, certainly love it all the other festivals that I've, I've heard of it playing at but uh congratulations on the film tim i think it's an excellent piece of work and hopefully we'll maybe see you at the festival yeah Definitely. Okay, thank you. Thanks. All right, well, uh, this month is uh, October, and it's very, uh, if we weren't scared enough with uh, the Joker, or we just scared you out of seeing the Joker, I'd highly recommend that you go to our next uh, Cinetopia at Lee Theatre Nights, uh, where we will be showing The Fog. And I think there might be some, 
you know, some interesting ambiance, if you will. <laughs> anyway, John Carpenter, uh, Annie's not here. She went away to Finland for a couple of weeks, but um, she is one of her favorite films. So um, she was too scared. <laughs> but we will um, we're venturing into that as well as, um, of course, the Edinburgh Short Film Festival, which we've just mentioned. Um, are there any films you're looking forward to seeing? There's so there's so many animation films that are just look absolutely amazing. A lot of award-winning films um, are coming to Edinburgh. It's an international film festival, you know? I'm interested in this, uh, the Texan shorts strand that they yeah. uh, I just saw announced on Facebook. So, like, very, very specific thing. Documentaries yeah. that are from the University of Texas, actually. Yeah. A, a gentleman named um, Paul Steckler runs that um, department. So I'm very excited about that as well. There's also quite a lot of good feature films coming out between now and our next show. Uh, I'm not going to give the game away because <laughs> like, we might talk about a couple of them, but uh, fortunately Take One Action Festival finished recently. I had the opportunity to see Sorry We Missed You, Ken mm-hmm. Loach's new one. Uh, we might review it on the next show, but even if we don't, I'd encourage you to go see it. I thought it was an absolutely brilliant film, uh, so that's going to be coming out on November 1st. Um, there's a lot of things coming out of film festivals that are going to start popping up and there's a lot of very interesting films coming out um, there's also the possibility of Martin Scorsese's new film The Irishman getting a, a short cinema run mm-hmm. um, so I'd certainly keep an eye out for all of that as well once the short film festival finishes Are you excited to see Judy? <laughs> Look, it was between Joker and Judy and <laughs> I'm going to see a movie about a psychopath and not another <laughs> effing biopic Oh... I don't know. I mean, I've heard, I, I, I still intend to go see Judy, right? Or, like, Renny Zellweger's performance is very, very good, right? It's not a musical. Is it a musical? I don't, like, it must if it's be a musical, somewhat like of not, a musical. But, I know. think the BFI is actually doing a whole strand of musicals. We hope to do some musicals as well. Um, but because of this movie coming out. Great. I love musicals. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I'm sure it's a very good film. Go see it. Go see it. <laughs> Any other films we're excited to see? And what's actually remarkable, given some of the discussion we've had on the show before, is the amount of interesting films that are coming out on Netflix, mm. right? So The yeah. Irishman is... like I mean, some of them are getting limited releases, but The Irishman is a Netflix release. The King, that uh, sort of the Timothy Chalamet Shakespearean thing, is a Netflix release. Marriage Story, the new Noah Baumbach film, is a Netflix release. Between Two Ferns, the movie, is a Netflix movie. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well done there, Luca. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Luca and uh, Jim, for being part of uh, today's t- podcast. Also, uh, thank you for Tim Courtney uh, for doing that interview. Um, we will be back next month. Uh, Cinetopia is produced by myself, Amanda Rogers, uh, co-founder of Cinetopia, and Annie Esikainen, co-founder of Cinetopia, and Jim Ross, managing editor of Take One Magazine, and Luca Vukos. Um, Cinetopia again and Paul Bruce who is also the director of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival uh, to check out more information about our, this podcast or any of the other events we do check us out at Cinetopia on Twitter or at Cinetopia Hub on Instagram or Facebook thanks so much and see you next time <laughs>